0: Welcome back to our story. My name is Matt Stone, uh, joined again by Dr. Phil Schrader, and this is our Holy Week edition. So we're glad you've joined us uh, for the next few minutes. What we wanted to do really was to walk through walk through Holy Week. Obviously, Easter gets a lot of attention. Good Friday gets less attention than Easter Sunday does. Uh, Maundy Thursday gets less attention than that. But uh, really, there's a a whole narrative that helps us prepare. Not only does it record for us the last week of Jesus's life, but it, I think it, in some significant ways, it really helps us to prepare for Easter. So we thought we'd start there, and then uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about Easter Sunday and where Phil's headed in the message this Sunday, and uh, and then we'll finish talking about. Some opportunities that you have over the next couple of days. So, Phil, where should we start? What do you think? How about the plot to kill Jesus? Oh, the plot to kill Jesus. Okay. Uh, So, this is a plot that's hatched by some of the uh, Jewish leaders, uh, religious elites. These are the folks, really, that Jesus has been battling back and forth with. Uh, sometimes from afar and sometimes up close and personal, but he's been battling back and forth. And what always captures me about that is these are the folks that should have known. These are the folks that should have known first and best who Jesus was. They they should have known first and best the kind of person that God would send and they completely miss it. And so this is where uh, this is where they begin to hatch plots against Jesus.
1: Yeah, they are, are trying to figure out how to do this, but not create too much of a ruckus. Not during the festival, you know, people may react poorly. And uh, so they finally get someone who is willing to betray them. Yeah, they're
0: they're strategic, right? Um, and I always pause. Anytime I hear the stories about the religious elite and the Gospels, it always gives me pause because I think that's... I think that's us, right? That's if we're right. going to make a modern day analogy, then that would be that would be us. The, the, the kind of the the inner circle of church leadership and the uh, the clergy and the the lay leaders of the church are probably the closest analog to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, and the scribes in the in the New Testament and that always makes me stop and think, what might I be missing? Because I think I know too much.
1: Right. And because we kind of gotten used to the way it is, we like the way it is. Um, I always think about the widow's offering. Uh, people use the widow's might there earlier and to t- as a way to talk about how people should be generous and give uh, their last cent to the church. But that comes after a warning to the people who are the religious elite. but where are the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. I've seen you in a long robe.
0: No doubt. You've I love seen long me in
1: a long robe. To be greeted with respect in the marketplace, a preacher, uh, and to have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say longer pr- say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation.
0: Yeah. I think you've nailed it. The widow's might's is not about sacrificial giving. Not at all. The widow's might is about somebody who comes desperate for provision. And instead of the people of God providing for her, they take from her. Right. And that, I mean, it's a frightening image for, for those who are kind of on the inside, so to speak, in the church world. Uh, I think we can't help but take notice of that. And, and I don't want to push the point too strongly. You know. But I think it's a warning uh, for us in our not to get too content nor too arrogant in what we think we know.
1: It, the, the text says they will receive the greater condemnation for they should know better. Yeah. For yeah. they should know better. You know, I, I tend to be the kind of person that uh, gives people the benefit of the doubt. And I give even more benefit of the doubt to people who shouldn't know better. Right. But for people who should know better, I tend to want to hold people to a high standard. Sure, sure. And that's in part what's what makes
0: Judas's person even more tragic. Right? Oh, yeah. This is somebody who's walked with Jesus, seen everything that the disciples have seen, uh, heard everything that the other disciples have heard, and still still manages to give Jesus up there's all kinds of thoughts right all kinds of thoughts about what's going on for Judas right some want to say that Judas is forcing Jesus's hand that it was actually a well-intentioned betrayal right
1: yeah he, he wanted him to show his power and if he if he just makes him show his hand then uh, everything will be fine
0: yeah and, and then there there are others who say well Jesus is just or Judas is just Uh, You know, greedy and money hungry, and he's trying to make a buck for himself.
1: But has already has access to all the resources that Jesus has. Yeah. I I gotta tell you, I'm not sure
0: that either of those hold much water for me, if I'm being honest. Um, Because this is somebody who's heard Jesus and walked with Jesus for three years, and suddenly he wants to make 30 silver pieces. It's not enough money to, to make sense out of the, well, he's just greedy uh maybe he's trying to force
1: Jesus's hand i don't know but well, maybe know. it d- gets out of hand okay uh, maybe maybe he he uh wants uh to to bring something new to happen and doesn't realize that he's part of a much larger plot
0: yeah yeah i think to some degree Judas's motivation remains a mystery and it may be better. It may be better that way um, because it gives us an opportunity to reflect uh, and kind of challenge ourselves along multiple lines. Uh, just as Judas may have been challenged along multiple lines. Maybe there was a little bit of everything rather than a exactly. like Yeah, You
1: don't know what kind of family pressures. You don't know all the different yeah. things, all the different layers that he might be experiencing. But then that takes us to the Passover meal that you talked about with our best man Bible study this morning.
0: Yeah, I, I think this meal, it, its importance just can't be understated. And we talk about the importance of communion in the church a lot because this is a sacrament. Right. It's an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual truth or inward and spiritual grace. We talk about its importance in worship, and you know John Wesley would, would say, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper as often as you can. And, and so we talk about it a lot in that context. But what's interesting to me is we don't necessarily talk about the Last Supper in the context of the Passion narrative, except for about one time a year. But this story, I think it might—well— I was going to say it holds the key to understanding the passion. That's probably overstating it. I do think that the story of the Last Supper contains one of the keys to a deeper understanding and connection with the work that Jesus has been doing and is about to do on the cross. And and, and that really is because the Last Supper is a reinterpretation of the Passover meal. And the Passover meal, much like communion is for us, the Passover meal was a central act of worship in Israel for 2,000 years or there were 1,500 years before Jesus is born. I mean, 1,500 years the people of God have been centering their worship life and worship year around this celebration. And so it's not an accident that Jesus happens to choose this moment, that that Jesus' crucifixion happens to take place at the same time as Passover. And so he reinterprets the Passover unleavened bread in light of his own body. It's his body that is broken. Uh, and and it's not the lamb that he's replacing because his sacrifice, I think, replaces the need for an animal sacrifice. There's no longer any need for sacrifice. So the lamb drops out of the meal for us as Christians. So can you imagine having lamb every first Sunday? I can't because I, I got to tell you, unless, I, I don't know, I, I haven't had lamb often. But I've had some really bad lamb, and
1: I'm not sure that I would trust a bunch of clergy to cook lamb well. I'm just Uh, saying. um, My family's Welsh, and I've grown up with tremendous lamb, so you'll have to come to our house and try. Well, you can show me how to do it, because I've had some pretty poor
0: lamb. I've had had a couple great... uh, I mean, I've had lamb a couple times. It's been great, but nonetheless, Jesus really, he just cuts it out uh, of the meal, or at least it seems that way. And I suspect that's part of the reason why is he's reinterpreting the purpose of the meal in light of himself. It's no longer the Passover lamb that marks and the blood of the Passover lamb that marks the people of God. It is the blood of Christ that marks the people of God. And so this meal, um, it gathers up the delivering act of God in the Passover in Egypt. It gathers that story up and then casts new vision for uh, the identity of the people of God in light of the sacrifice of the Son of God. So the Last Supper is, or Communion, or the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist. Uh, This, I think, is one of the most important Elements of Jesus's life for us to understand. Um, and, uh, and I wouldn't want to skip over that too much. This so is I hope,
1: f- hope this week people will take some time in their preparation to read Mark chapter 14 and chapter 15. Good. There's so much rich stuff in there. And you'll see chapter 16 differently if you do. Good. If you don't read that, you won't see that the women who show up at the tomb are women who've been with him all along that they're women who uh, actually witness the crucifixion from afar, and then a couple of them follow Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body. These women are not the ones who who flee. Uh, The disciples are nowhere to be seen, but the faithful women are there to the very end, uh, not just to be witnesses to the tomb, but to be witnesses uh, to the, the pain, the suffering, and the burial.
0: Yeah, I think some of the some of the reading that we can do in preparation again, we've been talking about this for weeks now that the purpose of Lent and certainly the purpose of Holy Week is to prepare us to celebrate Easter. Well, uh, for, for goodness sake, don't show up on Sunday morning and allow that to be the first time that we give thought to what we're here to celebrate It's certainly true that we can have a meaningful celebration if we do no preparation at all. And I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But how much more powerful, how much more of an impact can Easter have when we journey with Jesus and with the disciples and with the women who were with them uh, all the way through the story rather than just showing up at the end? Right? It's like showing up uh, uh, for the the punchline of a joke. Well, it might be kind of funny. And other people are laughing. And other people are laughing, which makes you feel good. But you're really going to miss the point. Uh,
1: or you're, at least you run the risk of missing the point. So, I, I did hear this week Brian Mudiman asked me, how do you make Easter easier? Uh, I, I,
0: I know where this is at, and I don't know how to get out of it. How do you get out? How do you make it easier? You
1: change the T to an I. Ugh. I mean, I feel like maybe that ought to just be the end of the podcast. But, uh, but that's what people do. They try to make Easter easier okay. by skipping Holy Week. Yeah,
0: okay. All right. I got to give you credit on that. That was a good turn. That was a good save. Let's say it that way. That was a good save on a bad joke. But you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Uh, we don't like to think about things that are hard. We don't like to think about things that are sad. And culturally, we've been trained to ignore death. So we skip over all of it. You're exactly
1: right, because these are so happy. And yet uh, the scriptures tell us that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And uh, Charlotte preached a beautiful sermon today at our um, noonday luncheons to talk about the the pain and the suffering and uh, a troubled heart.
0: Yeah, and that's a a great segue, too, as the story continues from the Lord's Supper, right? When Jesus leaves the upper room, he heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I I think, for, for my money, this is the best insight into the humanity of Jesus, because you really feel the pull that, I think, that he experiences, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he can look out, he can see the Temple Mount, and he knows where his story is headed. His story is headed toward his role as the sacrificial lamb, the ultimate sacrifice that will put to death, death and sin. Uh, and, uh, and so he sees the pain and suffering coming. But when Jesus is on uh, the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's a 20, 30 minute walk away from this vast Judean wilderness that offers complete anonymity and escape from everything that he knows is coming. And, and so you can feel with him the agony and anguish of that prayer that says, God, if there is any other way, let it pass. Let this cup take this cup away from me. Yeah. I, I, that's such an emotional moment. And I love, I love that this story, um, stands in the heart, in the center of, our, of the passion narrative because it reminds us that it's okay. It's okay for us to be overwhelmed at times even by our own agony or our own anguish when we're facing difficult decisions or facing whatever hardship or the death of a loved one or the loss of a job, whatever it is. I think this story contains a, an incredible word of comfort uh, for, for us as followers of Jesus.
1: I love what somebody said today. They said, <clears throat> you can go to Israel and you can see all sorts of shrines and churches and chapels built over these sites where we presume that some of these events happened. But you can actually go to Gethsemane and in a, in a way and and see that and experiencing that, that place in a way that you can't fully experience some of the other places as they may have been in Jesus' day.
0: Yeah. We know within a, a really small footprint uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been. And to sit there and look out on the Temple Mount and put yourself in that place, it's one of the unique experiences, I think, of a lifetime and uh, and brings to life, certainly, this story. So, um, you know, I think while our story ends in... Uh, the best news that has ever been shared. Uh, It refuses to ignore, right? This is one of the things I love about the gospel. The gospel refuses to ignore pain. It refuses to ignore sadness and instead confronts it head on.
1: And doesn't skip over things that you wish were edited out. You know, Peter's denial Mm -hmm. would have been so much better for Peter had that been edited out. At the very end of the scripture that I'll be sharing this Sunday for Easter, the only three people left over to be witnesses are women. Mm -hmm. And everybody in that day knew that women weren't credible witnesses in court. So why tell a story? Why even leave that in there?
0: Yeah, it's a great point, Phil. Uh, And that's where the story moves next, right? As Jesus leaves the Garden of Gethsemane, he's arrested and the disciples scatter, all except for two. Uh, and, and Peter gets a bad rap because Peter's the one that denies Jesus explicitly three times. All the disciples abandon him, though. And, uh, and, and it's easy to give them all a bad rap for that. It's fascinating that it's left in the story, right? It's fascinating that the early Christian church didn't decide to kind of whitewash the story and take out this embarrassing moment uh, which puts in, in all the greater relief, the courage of the women throughout the story. And um, I'm not sure if that's where you're headed in part on Sunday, but I don't think you can read the resurrection stories without seeing the courage displayed, not by the disciples, but, but by the women uh, who were part of Jesus's ministry. It really is astounding that uh, that, that features so prominently, I think.
1: There's one piece in the text that um, I had obviously read before, but never quite saw this way. The women are told, go tell the disciples and Peter. Mm -hmm. If it was Peter and the disciples, I'd be good. If it was like, go tell Peter and the disciples, it's like, go tell the leader and the rest of the disciples. But but the, the way that it's put together there, at least in the English, it's go tell the disciples and the one that may not be a disciple anymore yeah. go tell the disciples and peter that i'm going to go ahead of you into galilee and i i think at first glance you just got your heart has to hurt for for peter at that point i think it does and
0: um you know ultimately of course uh, i don't want to ruin any endings here but peter and jesus make up which is great. uh <laughs> good to know as, as much as as much as uh, uh the disciples and peter abandon jesus jesus of course refuses to abandon any of them and pulls them all back in but um i think to your point your heart hurts for peter and I, it's one of the best contact points. Just speaking for me, it's one of the best contact points for me in the passion narrative. Uh, right? There are multiple pieces that I'm drawn to. But for me, Peter's utter conviction that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, his complete conviction and his desire to follow Jesus, even if it means to death, and then, Jesus, and then Peter's fall uh, from all of that. Uh, I don't know. I, it's just something that resonates in my life because I hear that story. I feel that story played out over and over in my life and take incredible comfort that the rock, right, the one against whom the gates of hell would not prevail, the rock does this. And in a sense, it's it's comforting to know that I'm not uniquely broken, that this is just part of... Part of humanity uh, is this, um, uh, this you know, effort to uh, follow
1: Jesus and fail and follow Jesus and fail. Meanwhile, Jesus just never lets us go. And I think that's where we go on Easter, where the Easter message takes us, where they do hear, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going before you, that Jesus is going before you, into galilee
0: yeah i think that's right uh and again, and again i don't want to jump ahead too quickly but i think it's so interesting that jesus goes back to galilee right jerusalem's the center of the story but not the resurrection stories he gets so quickly back up to galilee he goes home yeah, I mean, th- to where it all started to yeah. where it all began uh, just so much that happens up there um but i don't want to jump ahead too quick but um so, so from the trial of Jesus, and that's where Peter's denial takes place from the trial, we move pretty quickly to, um, the, uh, the flogging and mockery of Jesus, uh, that the, uh, that the centurions perpetrate upon him and they carry him to Golgotha, uh, and his body's already broken at this point for all intents and purposes, and uh, put him on the cross at Golgotha, which, by the way, is another great example of one of those places where, you know, we've got credible credible archaeological evidence that's go- that goes back to the 4th century that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built on top of the, the abandoned rock quarry in which Jesus was crucified. And that 4th cent- century data really is built on some 1st century, 1st and 2nd century uh, traditions. So... Uh, it, it's a fascinating thing to remember that we can go to these places today. And you've heard me say this before, Phil, but too often these stories hover above the ground. They hover above the earth. And there, there's, um, there's something so powerful about seeing the place. Whether you go there physically or not isn't the point. You can see videos is far. Sure. But there's something so powerful about seeing that this is the real dirt on which the story of our salvation unfolded. Not up in heaven, not not disconnected, not disembodied, but it took place right here in creation. It's so powerful so uh on on Friday of this week we'll we'll take a closer look at the crucifixion and some of the last words, but I, but I will say this you know famous last words right we, we tend to pay attention to the last words that people speak in their life, and there are seven words or phrases that jesus. Utters while he's on the cross. And what I would suggest is those seven phrases contain a tremendous amount of information for us. Uh, And information makes it sound maybe a little bit too academic or a little too sterile. I think these are uh, formative in our lives as following Jesus, and they form and shape how we understand the cross. They form and shape how we understand our life and the way that we live. And I'm excited to dig a little bit deeper into that. But ultimately, that brings
1: us to Easter morning. Oh, you skipped over Holy Saturday. Well, uh, why why isn't there more on Saturday? You know, there used to be more on Saturday. Saturday used to be the time when new people who were making a commitment to Christ uh, actually were... um, quizzed if you will mm-hmm. they were asked about their beliefs and their understanding of what it meant to be a faithful christian and they were baptized and came into the church for the first time on easter morning were able to come and receive communion for the first time on on easter morning and and holy saturday used to be quite the the day yeah and now yeah. it's relegated to Egg
0: hunts? <laughs> yeah, uh, egg hunts or uh, just not doing anything between Good Friday and... and I mean, it's just skipped over, really, today. Oh, uh, so often. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Our, our entire season of Lent derives from this practice in the early church that really people were baptized only one day a year, and it was Easter Sunday. And so the 40 days leading up, where the preparation of, the, of those who would be baptized, and Saturday was kind of the culmination of that preparation, um, and uh, probably ought to be, we, we probably ought to re examine the way that we utilize
1: Holy Saturday. I have suggested in churches that we do confirmation on Holy Saturday, and that has not ever really <laughs> taken, taken root in the way that it did in the early church. Maybe fighting an uphill cultural battle on
0: that front. That's true. Uh, well, so Phil, that, that does bring us to Easter Sunday. Um, as we get ready, we've, we've been talking for weeks now about getting ready for this day. Uh, help us take the last few steps on this journey. What is it that we need to do to get our hearts and our minds
1: and our souls prepared for uh, a meaningful and powerful Easter celebration? What I would ask you to consider is to use that evening of Holy Saturday to prepare your heart and mind. So many people have Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, or any other Sunday. It becomes a rush. Mm -hmm. It becomes uh, a chore, trying to get everyone ready and out the door. And so what I would ask you is to follow in the footsteps of the women who, when the Sabbath was over on Saturday evening, they gathered spices to be able to prepare, to further prepare the body Uh, that had been laid in a tomb. And so I ask you if you will consider after sundown on Saturday to begin to prepare your heart and mind for what we'll experience together on Easter morning.
0: You know, I've never really thought about it, and we can end here, and then I want want to invite you to share about our service times and make sure everybody knows where we're headed. I've never really thought about it, but I wonder if there's room for an Easter analog to Christmas Eve. Huh. right, the reason that we gather to worship and celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve is to do the prep work in advance of the celebration right right This is why our one of our biggest worshiping gathering worship gatherings of the year takes place the day before the actual celebration, and what you're suggesting is something similar for Easter that we have Easter Eve that becomes this moment where we finally slow down uh, before the rush of Easter. uh, And there's probably room to re-examine why our Easter's are full of rushing around and not maybe seeing the main thing. But uh, that is what it is. Easter Eve
1: might be a great opportunity to to rethink how we prepare. I love that. And we can gather for an Easter vigil to Uh, Prepare our hearts and minds. And you can do that in your own home. So I hope you'll join us uh, in that Easter Eve evening preparation. And then join us that Sunday morning outside at 7 a.m. for Easter sunrise to walk in the footsteps of those three faithful women or at 9.30 outside as we gather in a, in a larger community to uh, celebrate the resurrection. We have 8, and a, eight, 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. inside, uh, and I think those services are already pretty full. So I think the best way to join us is at 9.30 and experience Easter the way Jesus did, outside.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a great day of celebration, Phil. Looking forward to it, and uh, hope to see all of you there as well. Until then, uh, happy Holy Week and, uh, and happy Easter.
1: Thanks for listening to the Our Story podcast from Dunwoody UMC. Visit us online at dunwoodyumc.org and join us for online worship every Sunday. This Sunday, April 4th, is Easter. Join us outside for worship in the parking lot at 7 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. or for indoor worship in the sanctuary at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. In addition to masks and physical distancing, we're asking everyone to reserve their seats by visiting dunwoodyumc.churchreserve.com. We hope you'll join us and add your story to ours.